0: I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses
1: into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Welcome again to Leading from the Front, where today we're going to be talking to a gentleman with over 20 years of experience with Charles Schwab, Ethos Trust Company, and Fidelity Investments. In short, he's a financial guy. He is the CEO of Ethos Consulting and Business Realignment, working with organizations to improve business performance well-being of their people, and increased growth and profitability. A graduate of Penn State University in finance, <laughs> big surprise, and has been involved in coaching basketball in the Boy Scouts. Please welcome David Newkirk. How you doing, David?
2: I'm great. How are you, Gary?
1: I'm fantastic, man. Fantastic. So, David, tell me a little bit about how you got into finance, what you've uh, obviously you went to college for, but... Uh, mm-hmm you know, I went to college for engineering went to the army. So uh, you know, <laughs> tell me a little bit about your background.
2: Sure. So, you know, it's funny that you asked that question about way back when in finance, because I actually went to school. I went to Penn State to be a doctor of all things. I loved anatomy and physiology, the cause effect, how the body worked and all the things that are going on there. I was very passionate about it. But somewhere along the way, I was bitten by the bug in terms of finance and economics. And I just realized Somehow that really spoke to me. And I, I would say probably halfway through my sophomore year, I decided to switch into finance and take as many economics classes as possible. You know, economics is liberal arts, finance is business degree. So I made sure that uh, even I couldn't get degree in econ, I took as many of those classes as electives as possible. And uh, everything just had blossomed from that interest going forward.
1: Well, it's really interesting because I started in pre-med too, but I changed not because I blossomed into finance, but because I <laughs> recognized when a friend of mine was taking uh, organic chemistry, with my memory, there's no freaking way I was ever going to pass it. So I had to find something to get around the, the requirements for uh, for some of this. So I jumped into engineering. So <laughs> Different reasons, but going down a better path, I think. So... Where did you go from school and how did you uh, start your profession of finance?
2: Sure. So, you know, uh, when I graduated, it was way back when in 1986, I'll even actually put the date out there. And we were actually in a down market. And so I graduated on May 10th, and I was so worried about whether or not I would get a job. I ended up, blowing off all my friends and not going backpacking in Europe. And I decided to get a job. And I started on May 12th at an investment firm called Putnam Investments, mm. which was this big asset management mutual fund complex in downtown Boston. And so my just career started from there. I was fast-tracked uh, after nine months into the management training program. And then that's when the market started, started to take off. That's when the mutual fund industry and finance started to take off coming out of the recession. And I ended up having... 21 positions in seven years there. Wow. And 14 bosses. So, a lot of growth, but a lot of experience, and very diverse in terms of seeing very different styles of people managing, right? As well as different types of employees.
1: Yeah. So when you look back at all of those jobs, uh, tell me a little about some of the things that you learned about leadership with all of those different Mm -hmm. managers. And of course, the positions that you had as well. When you think back on that, Mm -hmm. that uh, adolescent period of growth and management, what do you remember?
2: You know, I remember how I was a very good manager, and people really liked working for me. But I also remember there was a period of time when I was a very bad manager, mm. and people don't. People are very surprised when I say I was a bad manager, because that's where I had the most learning to become a a perpetually great leader. Okay, but I, I had to have those bad experiences and be willing to own that, right, and say yes. Yeah. So what I learned the most was that when there is high stress and high anxiety and there's huge demands we were always trying to keep up with the demand we were always trying to keep up with the volume of work being task and goal oriented with your direct reports and pushing them and pushing them to get the work done was actually counterproductive to leading them so what i learned most was being a task manager and goal oriented manager was not nearly as effective as just being a very good leader of people.
1: So how do you see being a task manager mm-hmm. different than being a leader? How is Absolutely. it
2: different? You know, yeah, it's really interesting dynamic. And this is something I like to talk about uh, because when someone is a leader is task and goal oriented, what they tend to do in general is remove themselves from the emotional connection of the people that are Mm -hmm. working from them. And they're using a single criteria of you got the job done, yes or no, you achieve the end result, yes or no, and you're just quickly evaluated. A lot of times it's absent of interpersonal connection Is lacking the ability to guide and to mentor or to foster and to develop staff to get what you would like them to aspire to. Instead, it's focused more on the short term of, did you do something yes or no? And so what I found is that that really pulls you away from the leadership role, which is leading people as it's defined. Anyone can be assigned a task, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's leading someone. That's delegating. That's actually delegation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And I actually call it abdication. You're really giving up the responsibility and you're saying, go do it sink or swim. I really don't care about you. Uh, we're not really involved in the process of them getting work done, right? We're just dumping it. We're dumping it. That's right. So so when you think about leadership, what do you think are some of the most important aspects, characteristics, the things that you learned through all of this Mm -hmm. process, all these positions that you learned to be a better leader?
2: one one is trust because as long as through the power of connection and you're connecting emotionally with your staff which means that they understand that how you are viewing them and what you're interested in in terms of how they're going to succeed trust is established because Now that when you're there are times you're not interacting with them, or there are times where you have down or stressful periods with the work and with the business, and everyone has to go, you know, work under trying times, there's less emotional. My boss doesn't get me. I can't believe my boss is being a jerk. I can't believe this because there's a trust factor that he or she gets me. So there's less of a need to feel like you have to bubble that up and talk about it. And they're more apt to just go through those periods and work more cohesively with the staff. But when that establishment of trust and that baseline connection isn't there, then that means a lot of the negative feelings of what's not there by just pure absence will bubble up and create issues.
1: So there had to be a time with all of those different jobs and all those different bosses where you had some trust issues. Yes. You know, you really struggled with some of that. Right. So how did if you can think of a story or a time Mm -hmm. when when you went through that, how did you deal with that? I mean, trust is is is, is, it's hard to get and it's easy to get rid of.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, absolutely right. You know, once you have trust, you're golden because you get a lot of leeway, even if you misstep as a leader. Mm -hmm your direct reports will actually give you mulligans, right? Because they know what you kind of leader you are, sure. and, and they get that. So to give you a story, I had a particular leader where, um, at the end of the day, we would be told whether we met our goals or not on a daily basis. Okay? And this was from a service perspective to investment advisors across the country. It wasn't sales-related. Now, there wasn't a discussion around how are things going, what happened today? Were there any challenges? What were the successes? It was just right into, okay, you did or did not meet your objectives, justify it. Mm. So what, what ended up happening is when we're in that extended period of time, we found that our turnover increased dramatically.
1: Yeah, sure.
2: So the average tenure went to 13 months of someone staying in a position working in these departments. And that's not very long, no,
1: so basically it was very short term you know you get the, you get the numbers, you don't get the numbers, and if you don't, you're out. so my question is, in those thirteen months, was the boss kicking people out or people kicking themselves out because they didn't, they couldn't stand the environment?
2: yeah, no, that's a great question. The turnover was an attribute of the people kicking themselves out. they just couldn't wait to post out right yeah. So a lot of them stayed at the company and just transferred elsewhere. Um, And then you have, as you know, that you have pockets of people who just leave all together because I always use the expression, you can be in the worst company but have the best boss who who blocks you from all those things and you think it's the greatest company, right? Mm -hmm. You can be in the best company, have the worst boss, and you just can't wait to get out of there and go someplace else and work for another company.
1: Well, we've talked about this many times in this program. Eighty five percent of the time people leave the boss. They don't leave companies. That's this right. is a great example of it. They'll find another position within the company or, or, or leave outright. Um, and uh, it's it's hell when you have a bad boss. It really is. So when uh, you were putting people through hell, you mentioned that you were a bad boss. How did you become aware that what you were doing was was bad, wasn't effective, and you needed to change. What, what was that transformation for you?
2: So we ended up, the company did a great job of installing a program where way back when the performance reviews, they call them 360 reviews now, right? But way back mm-hmm. when 360 didn't exist, but you had to get reviews by your peers and, some, and reviews by your direct reports. But what they ended up installing was A measurement for us as managers, which was how well are we developing people for promotion to move up and out, Mm. which is not a common philosophy. A lot of people like to keep their best people forever because they don't want to have to go through retraining and, and, and take perceived steps backwards in productivity until someone can get up to speed. But we were all judged on how well we developed and how well we developed a cohesive team of people. We were also encouraged that we were penalized if honest feedback was not positive, it was negative, but we were penalized if we deterred it. Right. So people had to feel it was a safe place to provide feedback if it was negative as well as positive. Mm -hmm. And they did a fantastic job of building a culture that allowed it so that they made sure the managers that they had were open and receptive to the negative feedback as a function of growth.
1: So if I understand what you're saying, positive feedback that was a lie was twice as bad as negative feedback that was the truth.
2: (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's exactly right. I mean, how often do we see it today? People will say what they need to say in order to be safe in their job, which goes to your point of, of positive lies. Yeah,
1: positive life. You know, yeah. it, it's it reminds me of uh, bringing up my sons. I would tell them that you know, you, you ask them. You you had kids, right? You have kids.
2: Uh, yes, I do. Yeah, you know, I do.
1: so you had a rule, right? Well, I have two, and and here's here was the thing, is if they lied, that was bad. Mm-hmm. But if they lied about lying, then it was really bad.
2: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> you know, and you know, just tell the truth, and let's get through the bad, and we'll we'll deal with it. But if you lie about it, that's bad. That's that's just not good at all. So um, it's the same thing with, with you becoming aware as a leader. So through these 360s, I'm assuming that you got some bad feedback,
2: which mm-hmm. was good. Right.
1: <laughs> and and it made you aware that uh, you weren't really being that effective, right?
2: That's exactly right. And it came down to it was I was so focused because of the pressure I had been feeling of being task and goal oriented, and I had removed myself from those personal connections uh, with, with my direct reports that it showed and it came back at me in the form of feedback. And um, it was, quite honestly, it was hard to take. I mean, I was I was young. I was 23 years old. It was hard to take. When you're young, you're full of I know everything, although we know we don't.
1: How did you handle it, though? How did you make the shift? And what uh, did you do?
2: At first, I took it as a hit. You know, you sort of you feel embarrassed. You feel embarrassed because when that awareness comes in, you sort of feel like, "Well, I can't believe I did that." One, you're like embarrassed about it because you don't want that to be how people feel about you or what they would say about you. So it's humbling. It's very humbling, and it feels embarrassed. But then it's different for different leaders. But for me, I've always been the type that said, "Okay, I'm all about improvement." What do I do better? How do I change that? I I don't like to be in that cycle. And so for me, it's all about owning your own, owning your own stuff, accepting it. And then doing something with it, and not spending time on why did that person say that? Do they have something personal against me? You know these are these natural games people can play in their heads, right as reactions, which is more of a defensive mechanism, which now you're operating on an emotional level, where now you're trying to figure out how to defend yourself for what you did instead. And I'm like, "No, I just owned it. Yeah. And I openly talk about it. I, I take the hit openly. I'll tell anyone the story. I, I'm not embarrassed. Sure. I'm not. embarrassed to say I was a bad boss for for you know for a year and a half.
1: Sure. And I've always said it takes five to ten years to become a mediocre boss, mm. to be a mediocre leader. It takes five to ten years, and we have to go through these tough times. There are very few natural leaders, and even those make big mistakes. Mm-hmm. And the humility that uh, you talk about have a little bit of humbleness. Uh, when I work with leaders, it's the first value I look for is a little bit of humility. Because if they don't have humility, they're not going to listen to somebody else. They know all the answers. Their ego's in the way. And what I heard you say is initially in protecting the ego, you deny,
2: you mm-hmm. reject,
1: and you try to justify. That's right. They don't understand me. They don't understand what I was trying to do, what my intention was. And we think if our intentions are good, then people should understand this. I was just trying to get results. And these are all the stories we tell in our heads. And that's all a bunch of BS.
2: <laughs> that's right. It really, really is because it's not that complicated. People operate at a much simpler level, which is it's very straightforward. This is what it was. This is how it happened. This is how it unraveled. And, you know, it this is how I it see it. it.
1: How'd you turn yep. it around? What did you do?
2: I ended up leaving the department I was in, which was good, I think, because If you want to sort of break that emotional thing of I need to do this better, um, we were in significant growth. So hence, I talked about all the different positions I was in. So I think making a change was good and using the change to institute change of myself. Hmm. Hmm. And so recalibrating and resetting, because when you deal with a bunch of young professionals who have all been working, you know, as direct reports, less than four years, three years, as much as that feedback was warranted to me, that age group isn't necessarily also gonna, going to be as easily to let it go. Yeah, right. Right.
1: Tell me, you, you became aware, you got over mm-hmm. the, the shock. Yes. What did you do differently?
2: So what I did differently is I managed people to... Hey how I would always connect with them on a daily weekly basis I would reach out to them individually and form individual relationships so they knew where they stood with me one on one and I always had an open door policy and open door policy can be a very canned statement oh my door is always open but that's that sort of can be a setup for an employee which is you can come tell me anything as long as you tell me what I want to hear sure yeah. right My open door policy was I'm here to just completely listen, absent of judgment. And sometimes someone is, someone would come to me and say, "I've got this issue at home. It's really stressful. You know, I need to leave early the next two days." And you're like, "Okay, fine. You you work on that." Or you know, uh, people are just doing a great job. You say, "Hey, I just want to let you know. I really appreciate. It. I I I see the work that you're doing." Conversations of praise don't need to be reward systems. Praise right. is just the human interaction of, hey, I just noticed what you've been doing. It's been great. It hasn't gone unnoticed by myself and others. Just so you know, because people just need that validation every now and then. Absolutely. So it's, it's really the two way dialogue. So the door is open for people to come in, feel safe. They're not going to get in trouble or they're not going to feel like, you know, I'm going to bark at them. But then the second piece is for me to self initiate, self initiate, recognize something and let them know I see and I hear.
1: Yeah. So in the work that we do with executives, I, I take that, you know, what you're talking about to mm-hmm. the, the very detailed level. I'll, I'll be coaching an executive and somebody walk in their office and they, they have their pen in their hand and I'll tell them, put the pen down. Right. I'll tell them, turn away from your screen. I'll tell them when you're in your office and somebody walks in, take your phone and turn it upside down so you can't, you don't get distracted by looking at it. And then turn away the proximity of your desk, where your desk is located, mm-hmm. needs to be positioned in a way where you can get out from behind it to basically welcome the person. It's like you welcome somebody in your house, you know, yeah, now with the problems that we're having, people – come to the house, they knock on the door and you don't open up the the screen door. You know, you don't want to get too close to them. But that will change again. We open the door. We let people in our home. It's the same thing at the office.
2: It is. And you know, I'd like to add a point of clarity too, because you, as I was listening to your comments, it it prompted my mind an important clarification in that transition. I made, as you had asked me about what did I do differently? I was never trying to be liked. Mm. I just wanted to be respected. Mm. Good point. Being liked co- can compromise your ability to lead. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so that was really important. And then, what, and to your point about the hold the desk and put the pen down, um, what was great training? So, we had great training there, leadership training too at Putnam Investments. But one of the things that they instilled upon me was if someone walks in the, into your office and says, Hey, can I talk for a few minutes? Go, sure. Do you want to just walk down to the coffee station and grab a coffee? We'll talk as we go. Or it's almost lunchtime. I have to run out and grab a sandwich and bring it back. Just want to go for a walk and come back just so it's not in the place of you behind me behind the desk, them on the other side. Because back then, it's not like we had a big office with a big table off to the side. You could sit around the side table and be yeah. more collaborative and feel. So they they really they really push get yourself out of your office as a place of having the conversation. And I thought that was beneficial and a good learning.
1: That's That's a great addition. It's a great addition. So other than the things that you've talked about, if you could have, if you could write your letter today and go back to that, maybe coming out of that, you've did the work for 7, 10, 12 years, you're starting to really find your stride. Is there anything you would tell yourself today that you could write yourself back maybe 20 years ago and say, hey, you know what, David, here's what you might want to think about doing now. It's going to really serve you well in the next 20 years. What would it be?
2: You know, it, I would be telling myself that, the goals that I set for myself for my own career Mm. were not based upon me closely managing people to a result so I could get promoted. Mm. I would tell myself the reputation that I build about how many people enjoy working for me while everything gets done is what helps my brand, the aura of a good leader, and allows me to move in an organization. Yeah. So
1: more focus on the relationship and the process and less focus on the uh, end result.
2: Yes, because what I found and where I found tremendous success after that is your best form of success is when everyone else talks about you in a positive way unsolicited because mm. they just like to yeah. do you know do you know dave duker he's a he's a great boss i heard he's awesome everyone keeps talking about he's such a great boss you know is he's you know they have an open position should i interview over there you know and asking people i mean that's what you want you want it to take on a life of its own sure
1: yeah i think i think there's that and the primary reason people want to come work for you is because they see all the people that are working for you getting promoted
2: that's exact yes, that's that's the key too, right? They see that their development and their skin in the game is getting fulfilled for their goals as well. and it's not about me. My goals are getting met because theirs are getting met. And yeah, yeah that is a huge, huge piece uh, to the equation. That's a really good point.
1: So any final comments for our listeners today, David, on leadership and and uh, what you've learned over the years that you might want to share?
2: Sure, I'd like to throw a stat out there for people to recognize the studies that have come out have shown that it is uh, and it'd be a you may have some stats too, and none of your numbers will be different, but the percentage of managers who think their employees leave because they're leaving for more money is seventy nine to eighty two percent okay The employees who left answered that question, and it was only twelve percent yeah. So the myth of people leave for more money is not really true, right? And so the the piece I think is really important is it's all about connection. It's all about interpersonal connection, how you treat people, how you work with people, and how you facilitate them becoming successful, And how your reputation though has to be visible because you can be left at the altar where you're promoting people and they're doing well, but you're not getting any recognition for the role that you're playing in that. So you do have, the role of communication is if people feel that you have had their interest at heart and you've been working hard at it, they will speak on your behalf and that's how you'll get it done. Sure. Sure. So that, that's my, my words of wisdom.
1: That sounds great, uh, David. I think that's a great place for us to uh, stop this and let people think about, contemplate, and see how they can go from being a bad boss to a great leader <laughs> like uh, it's been on your path. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. I want to thank David Newkirk for his wisdom and hope that you will listen again to Leading from the Front. Thank you.
0: Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com. S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S dot Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music